and welcome to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode is Militarism, Racism, and Climate Change, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC, the United National Anti-War Coalition, fights against wars at home and abroad. Their goal is to bring together organizations and movements representing people in struggle today and unify in collective action against the major perpetrator of war and injustice in the world, the United States government, along with its allies and proxies. We have folks from across the country and the world here with us today in order to bring the movements fighting militarism, racism, and the climate crisis together for peace and justice. My name is Cassia Laham. I'm a full-time public school teacher down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where it's about 30 degrees warmer right now. And when I'm not busy rolling around in my teacher money, I also organize around anti-war activism. I consider myself a full-time activist, and I serve on the administrative committee for UNAC. I was a co-founder of the organization Power, that's People's Opposition to War, Imperialism, and Racism in South Florida. And I also help lead the anti-war efforts of the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. Our panel today reflects the theme of this entire conference raising the most dire issues facing the people of the world today and trying to draw connections between them. It will likely not be too difficult for those of us in this room to draw those connections because those who are responsible for perpetuating these issues are really all one in the same class of people. They're profiteers counting their billions while the rest of us on planet Earth are busy counting down the doomsday clock. Elites who watch their stocks go up as the rest of us watch U.S. bombs fall down on countries throughout the world. And political leaders who allow white nationalists to march up and down the streets, burning crosses, while people of color in this country are not even allowed to drive or cross the street or stand outside a corner store without being murdered by police. We know who they are. And at this conference, we are here to tell them that they can't hide behind their billions anymore. The people of the world are sick and tired of it. And the amazing people on this panel who I'm very honored to share this table with today, are all leaders in the movements organizing for and demanding change, demanding justice and demanding peace. So with that said, I wanted to allow folks to give an introduction of themselves. Sitting next to me is Jean-Luc Pierrit, president of the board of directors of the North American Indian Center of Boston. Next to him is Mikasi Motema, organizer of People's Power Assemblies New York City. We got Diane Moxley, activist and attorney and organizer with Green Party of New Jersey. And we got Jeff Mackler, co-founder and administrative committee member of UNAC. So panelists, if it's okay, if we can go sort of down the line over here, if you could tell folks a little bit um, about your activism in combating, you know, either militarism, racism, or envir uh, environmental crisis and what actions you've been a part of and stuff like that. My name is Jean-Luc Perit. I'm originally from New Orleans. I'm a member of the Tunica Biloxi tribe of Louisiana. And it's there where my uh, family does language and culture preservation work. In Boston, as I was introduced, I am the president of the board of directors at the North American Indian Center of Boston. And I also have a full-time job that I do get paid for, because that's my job that I don't get paid for. I work for a nonprofit that emerged out of MIT's Center for Bits and Atoms, 
called the Fab Foundation, which fosters the growth of the International Fab Lab Network, 2,000 digital fabrication labs, community-based worldwide in over 100 different countries. So environmentalism and anti-militarism, I can tell you just based upon the scopes of the work of North American Indian Center of Boston, we're in our 50th year of service for the New England Native American community which includes American Indians, Alaska Natives, First Nations who go to Boston under the Jay Treaty, and other indigenous peoples within New England. We have currently have a, an initiative called the Massachusetts Indigenous Legislative Agenda, and it's with that we uh, partner with organizations such as Massachusetts Peace Action and Mass 350, along with other organizations. Uh, United American Indians of New England is another important partner but we have five issues across a number of bills, taking down native mascots. Forty public schools in Massachusetts have these mascots. Changing up the flag and seal of Massachusetts. It's a banner that makes it very hard to do the work that we do because it's evocative of King Philip's War. War that was fought almost 350 years ago. And still to this day, when we, uh, when we do civic engagement in Massachusetts, we are doing it under a flag with a native figure that has been composited, taking the head of Thomas Littleshell, an Ojibwe chief, the bones of a Massachusetts person who was excavated in an archaeological dig, and uh, above him is the disembodied arm of Miles Standish brandishing a sword. And the motto of Massachusetts, we seek peace but by the sword. So there is mas- mascots, there is the flag and seal, There's Indigenous Peoples Day over Christopher Columbus Day, but we're also pushing for state alignment with the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act and also a state education commission for uh, American Indian and Alaska Native students. 79% graduation rate, two times the rate of suicide, that of their white peers. So we're trying to do everything we can to get our kids healthy out of school, into, into colleges, and become more civically engaged so that they can talk about these issues of anti-militarism and, and environmental justice. Hi, um, my name is Makasi Matema. I uh, organize with People's Power Assemblies. We've done a lot of work in terms of Black Lives Matter. We've been doing it for well over five years now. And um, Right now, we have a campaign going on against the uh, MTA's fare evasion. You know, you might have seen, yeah, some of the protests going on, uh, a lot of coalition groups working on that. And um, we want to highlight the role that racism plays in terms of the way that the MTA and the city in general is trying to extract wealth from poor people and people of color. We also, uh, beyond just the sanctions campaign, we like to draw the connections between racism at home and overseas. So we do a lot of anti-war protesting, and um, we try to remind people that these issues are connected. I mean, if you look at the death of Trayvon Martin, for example, that was a situation where you had this murderer, George Zimmerman, who's saying he fears for his life from this incredibly small young kid. And it's like, this is a pathology of white supremacy, And if we only look at it as something that happens within the United States, we kind of miss the whole story. I mean, you can connect the pathology of white supremacy to the Iraq war. Like, the United States is the most powerful military on Earth. 
And for some reason, we came out and said, we're afraid of Saddam Hussein and their weapons of mass destruction. That's the United States saying, we're afraid of a person of color. And they're armed and dangerous, and we have to do something about them. So at People's Power Assembly, those are the connections that we try to make. And right now, the newest campaign we're doing is the uh, campaign against U.S. sanctions. Sanctions kill because they do. The weekend of March 14th, we're encouraging people to take actions in whatever city they organize in. And, um, you know, we're hoping to build something big. So. Hi, I'm Diane Moxley. I am a, involved in leadership with the Green Party of New Jersey. I also organize with a few different anti-war, anti-imperialism orgs. We have organized the uh, March on the Pentagon back in 2018, and 2019 we did a rally throughout the targets of the military-industrial complex and the war machine. And uh, my professional life, I am an attorney. For 14 years, I was a legal services attorney in Newark. I have been an activist my entire life, but I did sort of get, I guess, uh, reinvigorated and uh, amped up with the Occupy Wall Street movement. I also am organizing with the Peace Congress in New Jersey. That was something that came out of the Peace Congress in Washington, D.C. back in, it was 2018, right? Yeah, there was a mobilization to combat the Trump military parade, which went, as soon as Trump realized that activists were organizing and gathering and coming to D.C., he called off his parade, and with all the wonderful activists, yeah. so good job for everybody mobilizing that. I wasn't able to be at the Peace Congress in D.C., but since there were so many activists gathered, a uh, group of activists decided we're going to go forward with a Peace Congress. And with the mission being fighting the wars at home and abroad, and I think that's why a lot of us are here today and on the panel today, and the Peace Congress in New Jersey, we did a Peace Congress in Princeton last year, and it was pretty successful. We had um, about 30 people and they're activists and organizers where we're talking about what are the problems? How can we better mobilize? How can we reach out to communities that aren't traditionally represented in the anti-war movement? And this year, uh, I'm very excited to be working with Tom Violet, who is here today. He's with the Green Party and some other orgs as well and uh, Jan Weinberg, we are organizing a peace congress in Newark, and with the focus on the wars at home and abroad, we are organizing with the communities in Newark. So we have some wonderful orgs there, like the Newark Water Coalition, who's fighting for clean water in Newark. We're working with the New African Black Panther Party, and we're bringing in the orgs that have been doing the work in that community. And we're going to talk about how all of our issues are connected. So what are we missing? How can we grow? The best way we can grow is if we're all working together. I also organize with Extinction Rebellion in New York and New Jersey. In New York, I, I was part of the first nine arrestees. We blocked 8th Avenue for, gosh, I think... Pretty long time for 8th Avenue on a Saturday afternoon. 
But I was really happy to be able to take Extinction Rebellion into New Jersey. And one thing that really motivates me with Extinction Rebellion is something that is unique to Extinction Rebellion in the U.S., which is the fourth demand. And that is focusing on the communities that take the brunt of environmental chaos. So we're talking about uh, indigenous sovereignty issues. We're talking about establishing uh, reparations and remediations that are going to be led and for black people, indigenous people, people of color, poor communities. And I really wanted to take that vibe into New Jersey. So New Jersey's first action was with the Nork Water Coalition, who has been fighting for four years despite nationwide blackout of their hard work. So we were asked by the Nork Water Coalition to do the direct action component. And we had a very successful action at the MTV Video Music Awards on August 26th. And it's never a perfect action, but a perfect action in that we finally got nationwide attention. That action was on a Monday. I believe it was that Wednesday that Cory Booker was finally talking Nork water. Mind you, he was the mayor of Nork when this crisis began. There's some shifting of the blame, but, you know, allegedly he lives in Nork. I think he may drink the water occasionally. So finally, we were able to get the attention that is needed, and pipes are now being replaced. You're listening to Essential Descent. This episode is Militarism, Racism, and Climate Change, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. I'm Jeff Mackler, and uh, I'm one of the founders and administrative committee members of UNAC. I'm the director of the Northern California-based mobilization to free Mumia Abu-Jamal. We organized a demonstration a decade ago of 25,000 people to free Mumia, and we're still struggling to free him, and we're back in the race in court again with a chance to win. I've been a long-term activist in the civil rights movement. I was arrested nine times. I led the first northern sit-in in Ohio way back in the 50s. I'm on the steering committee proudly to keep the four Venezuelan embassy defenders out of jail. We toured all of them in California, basically sponsored by UNAC and 15, 20 other groups, and raised $8,000 for that effort. I'm a 20-year veteran of the Teachers Union. as an organizer and a teacher. I'm the National Secretary of the Political Party Socialist Action, and I'm Socialist Action's 2020 candidate for the presidency of the United States running against the Democrats and Republicans. Alan Greenspan, the former head of the Federal Reserve, wrote a thousand-page book recounting his life. And when it got to answering the question of why the United States organized a coup in 1953 to overthrow the democratically elected government of Iran, 
He basically said, you don't understand the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And what was that? He said, oil is a national security interest of the United States Central. The same oil is a national security interest of the United States in Iran today and in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. It's no coincidence that the United States threatened to obliterate organized coups and, and uh, use military intervention in those countries because they want to be the dominant fossil fuel nation in the world. Tragically, they wreak horror on the people of the world. Their sanctions and embargoes have brought those countries to their knees. Iran can't sell oil anywhere. Its scientists are murdered by American officials and uh, secret agents, and its uh, centrifuges are interfered with cyber war to blow up, and its oil is kept off world markets in order to dominate with regard to the United States. The same thing with Ukraine. The central reason for the United States backing a fascist-led coup in 2014 was that eastern Ukraine is the fifth largest resource in the world with regard to shale oil. And they wanted to frack the Ukraine in order to be the prime producer and shipper of oil to Eastern Europe as opposed to Russia, which it is now. The same thing in Syria. Joe mentioned the assassination of Soleimani, and they called him a terrorist. But it was Soleimani, as a younger man, who fought against the United States-backed Saddam Hussein 10-year war against Iran that killed one million Iranians and 800,000 Iraqis. We didn't know that the United States was actually backing both sides until Contragate, when it turned out the United States was selling tow missiles to its arch enemy, the demonized Iranian government. But once again, the purpose was to keep the oil of these two oil-rich nations off world markets in order to preference American capitalism's oil industry. With regard to Syria, I want to raise an important point. Because with regard to Syria, and Venezuela, and Nicaragua, and Cuba, and Libya, and every poor and oppressed nation on earth, UNEX starts with the single proposition that we support the right of oppressed peoples and nations to self-determination free from imperialist intervention. UNAC takes no formal position on the governments of these countries. That's not for us to determine. Our job is to keep the hands of U.S. imperialism off to allow people to decide their own future free from imperialist intervention. In Syria, they have to demonize the Assad regime in order to justify it, and they blame the murder of 500,000 Syrians on the Syrian government. What they leave out is that the United States, along with NATO and the Arab monarchies, backed and financed a literal army of al-Qaeda and the Nusra Front to take over two-thirds to three-quarters of Syria and plan to divide it up among U.S. allies in the region. UNAC opposes that, and we demanded that the United States get out. We demanded that the anti-war movement regardless of their position on the government of Syria 
or any other government on earth demand that the United States get out. All of these wars are racist wars. Every one of them is organized to demonize the oppressed people. Muslims are demonized in the United States, and the new Trump order extends the ban on immigration to seven different countries which have a majority Muslim population. UNEC is opposed to all discrimination and all racist policies of the United States at home and abroad. Joe Lombardo, in his talk last night, made a couple of interesting observations. He compared the anti-war movement of yesteryear with today. And Joe said that the three issues that we're discussing on this panel and that we discussed last night are interwoven and the source of the problem with regard to all three is the system that we operate under. He said it was a capitalist system that has to be brought down. The question is, how do we do that? UNEC has a couple of principles, and I'll close on these. One is the united front. We all work together, regardless of political party, regardless of our views on this or that country, to bring the troops home now and to use the vehicle of mass mobilization to do that. Mass mobilization is not just having a number of people in the streets, it's the organizing that goes into it. But more important, it breaks down the idea in people's minds that we are weak and isolated and can't fight City Hall. And when we get people out in the streets and they look at each other, they begin to realize that they are the majority and that the government doesn't represent them in any sense. In the old days, in my days, the government did not use the tactic of mass mobilizations. They were afraid of it. It was only the social movements, the civil rights and anti-war movements, the women's liberation movements, the LGBT movements. Today we see a new phenomenon. Right after we had 2,000 people in the streets of San Francisco organized by UNEC and others on January 4th, within a few days, to our amazement or perhaps not, the Democratic Party called anti-war demonstrations saying no war against Iran, which was the same demand that we raised. With Trump's inaugural, high officials in the Democratic Party organized millions four and a half to five million women in the streets to attack Trump as if the Democratic Party was free from prejudice and discrimination and sexism against women. They want to co-opt the movement, not only with a combination of NGOs, but with politicians who are capable of talking out of both sides of their mouth. The same Democrats who said they were against war basically condemned President Trump for withholding aid, they claimed, to Ukraine. But none of them mentioned that the United States orchestrated a coup in Ukraine to back a fascist government to promote U.S. and European Union interests in that country. None of us in this room are in the business of backing fascist-led coups, openly fascist. But the United States did, and here are the Democrats saying we should have given further arms to fight a worthless war against the Ukrainian people. I'm running for president because I don't think there are any solutions within the framework of patching up capitalism.
It can't be reformed. It's inherently racist, sexist, homophobic, warmongering, and against the environment. The idea that we're talking about a catastrophic problem of climate change, and yet the United States is increasing its fossil fuel use, increasing its fracking, increasing its offshore drilling, and increasing its wars for fossil fuel around the world. That's an insane proposition. No problem on this magnitude can be solved within the framework of maintaining the private ownership of the fossil fuel industry, which is the norm in the United States. It wasn't a coincidence that they appointed Rex Tillerson, the head of ExxonMobil, to be the Secretary of State. It's not unusual that they interchange politicians and government officials on the one hand with the corporate leadership to run the country. So I'm proud to participate in UNAC. I'm proud to be a founder of UNAC. And I'm proud to work with so many people who disagree with me on what brand of socialism you stand for. That's fine. That's what a real united front is. It's a fighting organization to get people in the streets to challenge the imperialist wars and the system that makes these wars a necessity. Thank you. So... What I'm going to do is just sort of ask our panelists some questions that are specialized for their particular areas of work and activism and have them speak a little bit about that. Makasi, if it's okay, I'd love to start with you. The question is, so we have all these various issues and Jeff did a really good job sort of talking about the connections between militarism, racism, and the environment. But I wanted to ask you specifically, given your area of work, how racism is used to perpetuate American wars of aggression. That's a good question. I don't think you can have American wars abroad without racism. One of the first things they say about a country to get the American public to criticize and to feel comfortable with intervention is they say the country is corrupt, you know, like it's plagued by corruption. And words are important. Corruption means that that you're willing to take a bribe. It means that you're dishonest. It means that you're a liar. If someone said that Bolivia was plagued with liars we would all understand that that is an incredibly racist thing to say. But the media and the U.S. government codes their language, and they say it's, it's plagued by corruption, and so they get to say it. They put the idea in our head, but they don't have to take credit for their racism. That's the pathology, again, that's the pathology of white supremacy, is that we're trained from when we're young to believe that people of color are more criminal. That's why when Ronald Reagan said that there are welfare queens, we immediately believe it. Like, yeah, you can't trust people of color with money. You can't trust people of color to run their own governments. You can't trust people of color to maintain a democracy. So you need white people to come in and basically fix it for them. And so you, the, the U.S. government, they, just, they drop these terms and people believe it because they've been force-fed white supremacy their whole lives. Okay, so on the same thread, I'm um, sort of bringing the wars abroad back to the wars at home. Jean-Luc, One of the questions I had here was, how does increased war affect black and brown communities and other communities here at home? So I wanted to first start with the idea that being here representing North American Indian Center of Boston, not speaking for, but hopefully being representative of indigenous peoples, I just want to like just frame that political designation because there are indigenous nations that are within the borders of this nation. And within those indigenous nations, they reserve the right to determine their own membership. 
That means that there are black and brown people in our indigenous nations. So that's an important designation, first of all. But I do want to like talk about you know just this in- increased war. How does that affect our communities? When you look at the representation of the populations within the military, proportionate to the populations within the, the whole country itself, Native peoples are overrepresented. African American people are overrepresented. When we look at customs border protection, half are Hispanic. And I use that term based upon like the language of the of the census and all. But you know, also for ICE agents, almost a quarter of them are Hispanic as well. And so why is it? That the military, why is it that these government jobs that we are constantly, our bodies are constantly being used to police ourselves, why is that an adequate intervention for things like the school-to-prison pipeline within this country? Why is it that in order to provide for yourselves and for your families, you have to go into the military, you have to do these things that do harm to ourselves. It's not out of self-hatred, it's about self-preservation for some of our families. So we have to recognize that. We have to just be conscious of why it is that we do what we do. You're listening to Essential Descent. This episode is Militarism, Racism, and Climate Change a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. Then you sort of, you touched on this already in your opening, but if you can sort of draw a strong connection between militarism and environmental degradation, that would be great. Okay, sure. And we know the... The connection has several different dimensions, but we know that basically our military-industrial complex controls our government, and the fossil fuel industry controls our government. When is the last time we've had a war that is actually for our national security? Hmm. Our wars are being fought for greed, for profit, for power, and to uphold U.S. imperialism. And what happens is it's really just a vicious cycle because wars that are fought for oil also have the side effect of creating instability in the countries that we're seeking to exploit resources. So we have a refugee crisis. We have a refugee crisis also from the environmental degradation that is occurring. There was a a report recently by the Department of Defense that is talking about the fact that environmental chaos is leading to more insecurity. They're admitting that basically the environmental crisis is creating the chaos. It's a cycle, but the activists have to be the ones that tell them, remove the curtain, lift the veil, and point the finger at the military-industrial complex, the U.S. military, because they are the world's largest polluter. And it's important also to note, we talk about that wars are fought for oil. It's not only just oil. It's We have other resources that are being basically captured and stolen by corporations 
things like lithium, rhodium, iridium, and more. And this increases the chaos that is connected to our military-industrial complex. We have AFRICOM in Africa, which their sole mission is to control the resources on the continent of Africa. We have overthrow of governments like in Bolivia, which is done to also plunder natural resources. So that's how you can see that all of our issues are connected. And I take the route of direct action and activism. And I think we're really going to have to step up our game. And we can't go on the back burner because of this being a presidential season. We need to call out all of our politicians, even progressive Dems who kind of have a little bit of an illusion of being lefty. We don't have anyone of the Democratic candidates that's actually Mm anti-imperialist. Maybe... Mm-hmm. You know, maybe their their supporters can call them to task on things like in the war, the military budget, and imperialism. So, Jeff, I feel like this is a question for you, right? So we have all these movements, and UNAC is really focused on bringing all these movements together. How do you think we do that? How do we bring these movements, environmental justice, racial justice... Because we know that they're connected, right? And we all agree that they're connected. And yet, we don't really have one big movement of all these things together. How, how do we sort of start building that? Karl Marx answered the question for this panel. <laughs> he said, capitalism creates its own gravediggers. It creates working people who find that they cannot live within the framework of the capitalist system. It creates a generation of young people today where a majority of the youth under 29 and now under 39 prefer a vision of socialism rather than capitalism. That's because these young people and an increasing part of the entire population is affected by a crisis-ridden capitalism that has to threaten the destruction of the planet through environmental destruction. Where you have a 17-year-old young woman, Greta Thornburg, organizing 5.5 million people to protest because the system is threatening the future of young people. Student debt is threatening. Endless wars are threatening. Racism, the prison industrial complex, it's for profit. Mm -hmm. The prisons are increasingly privatized, and the average prison wage today is 50 cents an hour. So why hire a Latino to work in the fields at minimum wage if they get paid at all before they deport it, when you can hire a virtual slave in the prison industry. The question is not that the people are not radicalizing around the world. We've seen millions protest in Chile, in Lebanon, all over the world against the horrors of the system of capitalism. The question is, What do we tell them to do? What do we organize them for? That's why I said it's not enough to say, oh, the Democrats are calling an anti-war demonstration. Everybody should go there. We should call the anti-war demonstrations, and we should have our own speakers and our own program and eventually our own united candidates who fight against the system 
to challenge the system at its core. In truth, Donald Trump or any Democrat or Obama, they don't make the fundamental decisions. They don't write the tax codes. They don't draw up a $4.7 trillion budget. Those are the corporate executives who funnel their ideas into the institutions that decide how the trillions of dollars in government money, which is our money, are allocated. So we start with how do you unite the people in action? And in my view, the best organizations that do that most effectively will get the best hearing on how to challenge the system itself. But the challenge starts, in my opinion, with a rejection of anything but building an independent, powerful movement based on the interests of the people in the streets. That's what UNAC is for. It's against all the wars at home and abroad, all the racist wars, all the oil wars, and all the slaughtering wars. Okay, so here's a maybe controversial question that everybody on the panel can feel free to answer or not answer. What do you think of the Trump presidency as far as its threat level? Is the Trump presidency more dangerous than previous presidencies that we've seen in the United States? Is it the same and the mask has just been taken off, right? And we can see the American presidency for what it is? Or, you know, is he more or less dangerous? What do we think? I mean, as far as impact on the world, impact on, you know, racial minorities in the United States, impact on the environment, is there an increased threat level with Donald Trump? You know, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson got fired. How many of you know why he got fired? He was sitting in in a National Security Council meeting, which Trump bounced in and said to everybody, you know, I think we ought to increase our tactical nuclear arsenal 1,000%. And he left the room, and Tillerson said, the guy's a f***ing moron. But he's a f***ing moron who says what every other administration does. He's not civilized in his dialogue, and if he changed a few of his racist, sexist, warmongering language, he'd be totally acceptable. The Democrats and Republicans were unanimous on the budget. They were unanimous on the revised NAFTA, which penciled in on 2,000 of the 9,000 pages new tariffs that benefited American corporations. It was the Democrats who upped Trump's military budget proposal by 40, 50, 60 billion dollars. So in every one of these instances, aside from his crude remarks, which is not getting him very far, the fact that we're having a dialogue today, you know, as the Nevada primaries go on, where people are talking about socialism. Last night, I went out for dinner at a Korean restaurant and there was a table of 15 people talking about socialism. I'm slightly deaf and I couldn't hear it, but my friend said, hey, they're talking about socialism. So we go over there and started a conversation with these total strangers in a Korean restaurant. I'm on tour across the country on the East Coast. Young people are burning with passion about a challenge to the capitalist system. They just don't know yet what it is. So it's not Trump and his crude, racist, sexist, homophobic rhetoric. 
Obama was the great deporter, exceeding Trump. Two and a half million people he deported. It was Obama that filled the jails and did nothing about the prison industrial complex where the United States has the largest number and percentage of people on earth in jail for cheap labor. And it was Obama who didn't have one of his eight years in power without presiding over yet another war. So Trump does the same thing with bipartisan support on every fundamental question. Even Bernie Sanders' proposal for $17.4 trillion over 10 years to fight the climate crisis, the Green New Deal, doesn't include the simple proposition that it can't be done within the framework of a private ownership of the oil corporations by the richest people on earth. You can't leave them intact and change anything with regard to the environment. The only way you're going to drive those people out of business is a massive movement with a central focus that is against the system itself. Press the panelists, chime in. Yeah, Donald Trump's favorite president is, if I got this correctly, Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is a genocidal monster. And that's a president who goes back a while. Like, that's not a recent president. So I... In terms of Donald Trump's racism, I, I think Donald Trump is as American as apple pie. I don't think there's anything new about that. In terms of his incompetence, I think you couldn't have a president like Donald Trump unless the capitalist state that we have now is in such a state of deterioration. The empire is coming off the rails, and that's why we would allow someone who's not just as racist as Donald Trump, but as incompetent as Donald Trump to come into power. And what that says to me is that that's not going to get better. We're not going to have a better president after Donald Trump. We're not going to have a less racist president after Donald Trump. What we're going to have is desperate white supremacist capitalism trying to take as much as it possibly can, mostly from people of color, but from the working class generally. And unless we organize to stop that, you know, we're in trouble. So if you remember from the beginning, I said that I'm from New Orleans. When I was growing up, we had a governor's election, and it came down to Edwin Edwards versus David Duke. And I remember watching those debates with my parents as a kid, and I said, what are we going to do if he wins? Are we going to move out of Louisiana? I mean, we had cousins on the Choctaw Reservation in Mississippi, I mean, imagine fleeing Louisiana, fleeing New Orleans to go to Mississippi for refuge. But my parents said, you know, no, we'll we'll stay put. Of course, David Duke did not prevail. But what did happen was that those signs that said, this is Duke country, those signs stayed up for at least a decade. So I just want like everybody to realize that even if my, my friend Jeff down here defeats Donald Trump in November, where do all those red hats go? Where do all those judges go? He's not going to take them all out with him. So we have a cultural problem that we need to address that is that's long overdue. 
we have conversations. We have conversations like reparations. We have conversations, you know, if we talk about environmentalism in a little bit, talking about why did the Paris Climate Agreement not recognize the rights of indigenous peoples? So we have a lot of conversations, a lot of cultural conversations that are coming to the forefront. But we do have to figure out, regardless of what happens to 45, we have to figure out what do we do with the red hats? What do we do with the judges? You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Militarism, Racism, and Climate Change a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. So environmentalism, though, has still been able to become a topic of conversation, um, and the Democrats have been able to sort of co-opt, take advantage of the movements for environmental change and environmental justice. And they seem to be, in almost every Democratic debate, we're seeing environmentalism brought up, right? And we're seeing it on the news, even the billionaire racist, sexist, pseudo-fascist Mike Bloomberg is talking about saving the environment. So why do you think environmentalism gets to be at the forefront of a lot of these debates and discussions while the other two parts of our conversation at this conference and on this panel are left behind. Nobody's really talking about racial injustice. Nobody's really talking about imperialism. It's a safe issue. They don't want to talk about racism. They don't want to talk about the military. But most of their plans are are really, really crappy. They've all put out environmental plans for undoing climate chaos. They're either not touching on environmental justice, they're not touching on the military, they don't have strict, strong deadlines and target dates. Even the best plan of any of the Dems that are running right now, and it, you know, I'll say it's Bernie Sanders' plan is not terrible, but it doesn't have target dates It touches on environmental justice, but it's not explicitly stating what the need for demilitarization is. And yeah, they're not going to talk about racism because their systems of government uphold white supremacy, racism, and the military-industrial complex. I did talk about how the Paris Climate Agreement does not recognize the rights of indigenous peoples, and there's a conversation to be had not just with the systems of power that we, are, that we all sort of have to deal with, but there is a conversation that needs to be had in this room. Right now, complementary to the Green Deal, there is the Red Deal, which talks to people on the left and the grassroots. And a fundamental principle of that is when we talk about divestment, we're talking about not just divesting, and we have to be conscious of how we are reinvesting that that capital. We can't just do trade-off. We can't divest from fossil fuels and then go down to Bolivia and extract all the lithium for electric cars. Mm -hmm. That flies in the face of indigenous sovereignty. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about Wet'suwet'en in Canada right now, the struggle is between the hereditary chiefs the people that are standing for the traditional culture, the language, all of the, you know, the ancient knowledge, and then those 
those band councils that are there for economic development, making sure that there's like, you know, some kind of revenue stream. And that, that's something that we deal with here. We, ha- we have to deal internally with our own tribal governments that are making these decisions based upon what's going to bring in cash versus what is going to help us stand on our ancestral knowledge. So we have to like really confront all of that stuff. And we have to do that you know, also in this room. You know, when, when we're asked to come to these sessions or come to the marches, don't just ask us to come you know, a week out and say, well, can you do a land acknowledgement? A land acknowledgement is just, for me, it's just saying, please, please can I say you know, what I have to say. If you're just saying, okay, this is it, you know, I can't even get my words out. Thank God I can do that here. <laughs> I just want to put out there you know, that we have to really have a shift of consciousness, not just about the powers that be, but all the people within this room. Is it too late to do something to, for the environment? Are we past the point of no return when it comes to the impact that capitalism and imperialism have had on the planet Earth and really human survival? I mean, what, so what would be the next most important thing that we have to do to make sure that we can be successful in our environmental justice campaigns? Destroy capitalism. All right. <laughs> You're listening to Essential Dissent. We'll end this episode with panelist Jeff Mackler responding to two audience questions. UNEX starts with the premise that we support the right of self-determination of every oppressed people, oppressed nations. That means oppressed nations like Bolivia, Venezuela, Iran, and so on. We want to keep the imperialist beast out of those nations. We don't want the United States to obliterate Iran or Venezuela. But the question is, well, what's our attitude towards the struggles of working people in all of these nations, which are also capitalist? We could take two answers. We could say, hands off, condemn both sides, equal blame, stay out of it. If that was the case, UNEC would go out of business tomorrow. Our starting point is to support their right of self-determination. And indeed, if any of us had mass forces in those countries faced with an imperialist intervention, if we weren't on the side in the forefront of opposing that intervention, we wouldn't have any credibility with the people of those countries at all. That's critical. If you want to make a revolution in Iran, advance the cause of workers in Nicaragua, or anywhere on earth, you don't stand a chance of getting a hearing from those people if you're on the side of the imperialists, if you're neutral on the war, if you spend your time focusing on the evils of the capitalist regimes as opposed to the immediacy of an imperialist war and takeover. Socialists want to build for revolution in every country on earth, but the starting point in the history of every one of these countries, from the Russian Revolution on down, is to support the right of self-determination of oppressed people. That gets you a hearing. That gets you in the door. That gets you in a position of uniting workers, not only 
against the imperialist threat, but building a revolutionary party in that country that can challenge the capitalist system, which has to be challenged everywhere. The real point of this question is, in the movement today, we have a major division. We have people who refuse to join with UNAC and our mobilizations because UNAC doesn't sufficiently hate the Assad regime or the Gaddafi regime or the Maduro regime or the Ortega regime. That's not our responsibility. This equal blame, third camp, we're revolutionaries, we're against everybody, we make an equation between U.S. imperialism and a poor nation, that's the downfall of the anti-war movement. President Trump praised the human rights demonstrations in Iran and uh, made Venezuela and Nicaragua a human rights issue. And as our speaker from Nicaragua said, we have to be wary of these, quote, mass protests that are organized and funded by NGOs and U.S. propagandists in these countries. For example, in Nicaragua, it turns out that the instigator of these mass demonstrations was the Council on Private Enterprise, the Catholic Church, right-wing student organizations, and NGOs financed by the United States. There was no, quote, indigenous mass mobilization. And the same thing happened in Iran. Just a couple of weeks ago, after the assassination of... Suleimani, there was a demonstration that was the largest funeral demonstration in history. And then there was a controversy over whether or not to continue the demonstrations that Trump supported. Trump warned, if you touch these peaceful demonstrators for human rights in Iran, you're going to have to deal with us. But Mukta al-Sadr withdrew the support. His party got the largest number of votes in the country. And he happened to play a key role in fighting U.S. imperialist intervention with the support of the Iranians when the United States attacked Iraq and in the course of that war killed by assassination, murder, and sanctions 1.5 million Iraqis. And Assad was on the right side of that war, opposing the U.S. imperialist intervention physically with an army along with the Iranian army. That's our side against the imperialist intervention. But in these cases, suddenly the truth came out. It was unanimous in the Iraqi parliament that the United States get the hell out of their country. They repudiated the idea that the United States was some kind of peaceful neighbor. It went in, ripped off the oil, rewrote the contracts, and now Trump says, if you dare drive us out of your country, we're going to charge you for the military bases that we built there for you. <laughs> and we're going to sanction you. It made clear to the whole world that the United States was the imperialist aggressor. Whereas people on the other side said, well, look at all these Iranians demonstrating against the government. Yes, there are Iranians demonstrating against the government, some with legitimate reasons, but most of them backed by the U.S. imperialist corporations and NGOs and figures who want their own share of the, the rich people who want their own share of the country. So we have to be very careful when we evaluate these protests anywhere in the world. We spent months watching the United States government say the Venezuelan people want us. 
Juan Guaido is, uh, you know, he's our guy. He's uh, democratically elected from the Venezuelan parliament. And they had a worldwide propaganda campaign to convince the world that Guaido was the legitimate president. And that was repudiated by the Venezuelan people, who Joe said are different than most of the people in the world. They are armed with guns in the millions to defend the gains of their society against U.S. imperialism. It's a very dangerous question for us if we decide to be neutral on those questions and not understand the central objectives of the imperialist base. You've been listening to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode was Militarism, Racism, and Climate Change, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC, the United National Anti-War Coalition, fights against wars at home and abroad. Their goal is to bring together organizations and movements representing people in struggle today and unify in collective action against the major perpetrator of war and injustice in the world, the United States government, along with its allies and proxies. The panel moderator was Cassia Laham, a public school teacher and full-time activist who serves on the administrative committee of UNAC. The panelists were Jean-Luc Pirit, president of the board of directors of the North American Indian Center of Boston, Makasi Motama, organizer of People's Power Assemblies New York City, Diane Moxley, attorney, activist, and organizer with the Green Party of New Jersey, and Jeff Mackler, co-founder and administrative committee member of UNAC. You can find Essential Dissent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via RadioForAll.net. That's Radio, the number four, all.net. Thanks for listening. <laughs>